Hello and welcome to Red's Business and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Barnes. And I'm your co-host, Nigel Hine. Today, we're sitting down with Scott Clements, who's the Managing Director of Inertia Engineering. We'll be speaking about everything future of the engineering and construction industry. Scott, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, let's, mate, let's start with your background um, and uh, what you did before Inertia Engineering. Yeah, well, t- try. I suppose I went through the normal path of going to university at UQ, um, spent the first six years here doing engineering, structural engineering for a local consulting firm, sort of mid-sized firm here, then decided to go overseas as, as most Australians do at that point in time and, and spent three years in the UK. Uh, why, well, why did you go over the UK? Just exposure or? Just to travel really, okay. yeah. So worked over there, worked for a year in the north of the UK in Leeds. Um, I was very keen not to go to London. Uh, I, I wanted to see the rest of the UK instead. Uh, so worked for a year in Leeds and then two years in Bath. Um, very, very lucky in Bath to work for a, a very sort of cutting edge, innovative firm there, um, a, a firm called Bureau Happold, who are highly regarded English firm who also have offices in, um, I think, the States and, and in Singapore as well uh, and Europe. Good experience. Like, do you learn more over there than you would have just working just in Australia? It's certainly, and I think I already got the fundamentals of, of the technical side in Australia, in Brisbane, um, but I didn't get uh, everything that we could do. You know, what, what are all the opportunities out there with different construction techniques or different ways to approach things, um, different culture. Uh, the, the way they ran as a business was a lot uh, more fluid, I guess, uh, a little bit more of a, of a flow business than a, than a structured business, um, although they had structure as well. Um, they did things like hiring graphic designers uh, to to really lead engineering uh, work, lead projects. Um, we're normally in engineering, right. you're, you're sort of after the architect yep. or someone like that. So they, they'd, they'd do projects like bridges or stadiums that, that they – engineering is such a crucial part of it um, that they had the add-on sort of front-end th- side of things to drive the design. Uh, mm. So I was very lucky that I – I came across in a senior level already, uh, so I got the opportunity to then work really at the front end of end of projects, really cool projects such as um, uh, we, we look, had. I had to look at this stadium in Marseille in France, where existing stadium, existing football stadium there, and they wanted to retrofit a roof over the top of it. Uh, and so for weeks on end, it was just me and a graphic designer working out how we could make it look, but also make it work as well at the same mm. time. Um, so that's yeah. awesome. Did you do any? Uh, I, I imagine over in like Leeds, for example, there would have been a lot of old buildings you'd have to renovate and stuff. Where there would be any nothing like that in Australia, you know, beyond three hundred years or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's obviously opportunities all the time for that that sort of things. We did a. Uh, uh, it was a brewery a redevelopment, so it was in Dorchester, which is in the south of England. Uh, this massive, you know, much bigger than, than Castlemaine here, um, a big precinct. Uh, and then so they redeveloped that or probably are still redeveloping that at the moment, uh, residential, shopping centres, uh, cinemas, all sorts of things. Um, yep. Yeah, working with the existing structure and, you know, some things that I, I, I'd had experience with a little bit here um, and some things I probably clash with the locals on as to, you know, I think it could be done better as well. But, yeah, um, right. yeah great opportunities. Yeah. Did you, we'll, we'll speak about industrial engineering in a second, but did you bring any of that uh, experience and, like, graphic design lead 
um, engineering next into the way you operate at Inertia? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's the biggest gap in most most of what engineers do here, structural or civil or, or whatever type, is that they, they, they don't think enough broadly. They don't think enough holistically around the, the problem they're trying to solve. They, they see a very narrow, um, this is what I've done before, so this is what I should do this time. Um, without stepping back and looking at the big picture, understanding the big picture sometimes. You know, we, we always talk about that sometimes you don't even have to solve that problem. You could make it go away by looking at it in a different way. Uh, so, yeah, that, that side of things and being, being a little bit more creative up front, um, you know, thinking around things rather than trying to go through them, that mm. sort of stuff, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll unpack that creativity piece a little bit later. But first, you, when you, you finished overseas and you come back to Australia, I mean, why did you come over to Australia and then why did you start inertia, with inertia? Well, actually, I, I decided when I was leaving the UK to not be an engineer again. So um, that was a bit of a sideways journey. Uh, I, I probably, I'm, I'm not, while I can do the technical side, it probably doesn't, excite me as much it's probably the you know the front end of the technical side really does i suppose that's the more holistic problem solving side where you can where you can have an impact across a different a range of different areas so um, what's the front end just for people listening who don't understand uh, it, i suppose it's it, it's the earlier you get involved in a project the more you have to the more influence you can have by uh understanding what every different um stakeholder cares about you know whether it's a developer builder um you know five or six different engineers you might be working on on that the architect the town planner the urban designer all sorts of you know we, we work in teams of 15 15 people and I, and I just love knowing what sort of everyone really cares about and getting involved in that side of things so i can then even though my role or our role within that is you know less than 10 percent um but potentially at the front end i can uh, think my way around a problem or help help be part of a, a big complex team of consultants to um, essentially just make a great impact on that project. Yeah. As opposed to more of an architect-led, here's the design, make sure it's not going to fall over engineering. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Mm. Really like the collaborative process more. You know? yep. And I think that when you get good, really good consultants around the table that are, are good at what they do but also good at talking and listening to each other, uh, that's when the best results. Uh, so when through the process, um, for anyone listening who's maybe looking at getting something in the future or in, in that industry at all, mm. when's the ideal time to engage the engineering team, do you think, in the process? Always right at the front. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think so. Look, we, we've done amazing projects. We've got engaged before the developers bought the site. Okay. So so they go, look, Scott, we're, we're looking at, you know, Scott or Inertia or whoever it is, uh, we're looking at this site might be an existing building or it might be just a piece of land. The piece of land might be, well, what are the constraints around it? You know, how can we work around those constraints? What do we need to worry about? What do we need to look out for? What are the opportunities too? There's a few that are highly constrained sites that everyone else passes up on, but we look at it and go, actually, there's a solution, potential solution here. Okay. Um, and if you get it for the right price, well, then, then you can get the value out of it. There's one particular project that we did in the city that's a multi-award-winning one now um, called Midtown where – we got engaged to do uh, pre-purchase due diligence of two existing buildings, and and our and our client had a had a dream to say, well, how can we add levels on top of these two uh, existing twenty-story buildings? Um, and said, can you have a look at the building? Can you have a 
you know, you've got two weeks to do some due diligence on working out whether we can do this or not, which is obviously we weren't going to sort of uh, be completely confident in that in that yep. period of time, but um, we're confident enough that we could go ahead with it. And, um, you know, based on, on our advice and some architects' advice, yeah, they purchased that building and, and you know, we ended up with seven stories on top and joining yeah, cool. the two towers together and, and a very successful successful and, and really interesting project that we've actually been um, written up in the American Institute of Civil Engineers. We've presented to engineers in the UK wow. about. Um, that was Midtown. Uh, Midtown Centre, yes. Yeah, cool. Yep. So you move back to Australia, don't want to do engineering anymore, but still, still like the early kind of concept side. And then how did you land at Inertia? Yeah, so I my sort of sojourn away from engineering went into – um, I, I guess more development or, or, or actually project homework. So I, I was involved in the construction, marketing, finance, sales side of that. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I, I love that, being involved in a, a whole different part of the industry and it's probably what's driven me to be understand and be involved upfront in projects because I've obviously understood uh, different elements as well. Uh, and can add value through that. Uh, unfortunately, the GFC hit that that little sojourn, and then uh, I was I was getting about to get married at the time. I thought I better get a real job again. So, right. uh, so I was I started working with my now business partner at Inertia. He'd he'd um, uh, started a small business. It was the um, the version before Inertia. Uh, wasn't called Inertia at the time, but um, he was just working out of a as a sub-consultant to another a geotechnical engineering firm um, and he had too much work on. So I said, look, do you want me to help you out? I just started doing some contract work and I think six months later I said, well, you know, should we just give this a go? Um, we seem to be offering value to people and getting more work and out of the GFC we kept kept growing. So, well, um, we made an agreement to, to join up and that was 2008 and... Um, Three years later, I'd call the start of Inertia because that's when we got a bit more serious about things yep. like websites and marketing and our own office and whatnot. How um, many employees at Inertia at that time? Uh, two, so 2008, I was I was essentially the second oh, right. one. So yeah, there was three, three yeah, of us okay. all together. Yep. Uh, and then 2011, when we say we got serious, it was only five of us still. So yep. we'd, we'd just been ticking along doing some smaller structural engineering work and, and um, being quite happy. I, I'd started a family at the time, so I wasn't really trying to – spend all, all my time in the office um, but uh, I, I probably always knew that I wanted to do more than, than, than just sit on the tools I guess so what's the name when did you change it to inertia engineering in 2011 yes. and like what's what's the name like what's yeah. the background the real story is I wanted momentum but I couldn't get it so <laughs> I, <laughs> so inertia was the 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 next option I, I think that it's worked out really well actually I think it's better than momentum um, inertia is a, a little bit Misunderstood, I think, is a term in, in this country. Uh, a lot of uh, – I, I know a lot of people that I've spoken to, particularly uh, older Australians that used to use the term, think about it as inert, as in not moving. But but inertia is actually, you know, it's, it's in its state of movement or otherwise not movement unless acted upon by an outside force. So it's a right. – um, so essentially our take on it is that, you know, our services – always moving in our in our projects to stand the test of time. Um, okay, yeah. cool. What sets Inertia Engineering apart from other engineering firms? I think there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, 
there's probably maybe three things, I think. Uh, culture has always been a big drive for us. Uh, you know, we spend and have always spent a lot of time connecting with each other, um, you know, doing, doing different social social things, uh, doing, doing charity things as well. Um, we, you know, and I think everyone that has, almost everyone that's come there has said, oh, this is different. You know, we, we really enjoy this um, being here. Uh, so that that's probably the baseline for us, the cultural side of things. I suppose my background being outside of engineering is, has helped as well. So I, I like to teach our, our younger engineers more about the industry than just their narrow focus that they, they learn at university, which is okay. essentially, you know, um, computer programs and um, spreadsheets and things like that. So I really like to, you know, show them the view from everyone else's eyes, as in the other stakeholders that are involved in a, in a project or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably lastly, marketing. I, I really like marketing. I, I enjoy it. And, right. Um, so I, I think that uh, I, I think that most – some of the engineering firms are catching up a little bit now, but, you know, 10 years ago no one was doing anything at all. Why do you like marketing? I don't know. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Most business owners are natural marketers, right? Yeah. 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 You don't yeah. think of engineers as, as market marketors, though. But you don't think of Scott as an engineer, though. Yeah. Or a marketer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I do have a saying to, to some of oh, – to, to anyone that will probably listen to me most of the time, but particularly to our, our people, is that only doing a really good job is only half the job. You've got to tell people about it too. Yeah. Not tell people about it in an arrogant way, but let people know what you can do and the, the value you can offer to a project or a client um, and then you get that opportunity to do it again. Mm. And ultimately engineers love solving problems. That's generally what they did engineering for and what drives them to do engineering. Um, but they'd get more opportunities to solve more problems if they tell people about it. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's probably the drive a little bit. And. Mm. I also have another saying: We're only competing against other engineers that don't don't always don't, that they they feel like marketing is a dirty word. Yeah, um, that's that's what I thought most engineers thought about marketing, which I thought was very surprised when I came in with actually. So that, that's cool, and we can unpack that one a little bit in a second. Yep. But before I do, there's a lot of ways I want to take this. Not do you want to jump in a couple of questions? Oh, probably the first question I've got for you, Scott, is you've seen obviously technology transform organisations like yours over the you know past couple of decades, like. Can you share with us you know, where you've come from? Where do you see things go? Obviously, there's so much coming in the likes of AI and automation and, you know, obviously mm. cybers integral to everything you do. Like, Just talk, take us through the journey. Well, I'm going to show my age a little bit here. It was when, when I first started in uh, uh, before 2000, let's just call it that, um, We uh, our office had one email address that we all shared. We still had uh, – we still had – paper copies of all our plans and, and plotters and we still sometimes drew by hand um, and drew and had to scratch out things when they were when they were wrong and, and redo them or redo it all again. So um, the the first step has been that efficiency on, on, on the digital drawing side of things, without a doubt. Um, uh, that and that's that's probably the thing that's come the longest way, I think, in in the industry in my time. I think that Australia is still behind other other countries. So, um, particularly on the drawing, we're behind, or where do you? Yeah, see? yeah, it's it's coming in now. So, so we, you know, the the 
most of the leading, I suppose, uh, countries um, such as the UK or, or Germany always have integrated building models where, or, you know, the clash detection between structure or services or, or anything else is, is almost automatic. Um, and then that building model then gets used for the life of the building to understand what maintenance requirements and, and things like that are. Um, you know, we, we're doing it now, um, but we were slow on the uptake, um, particularly in the private space yep. there. Uh, government's mandating a lot of this now, but, um, yeah, the private space has been slow. So that, that's probably the biggest change. I think I think then I'd probably go to sort of o- operating systems, you know, how we manage projects, how we record our time and things, how do we um, record communication as well. That's something that we did probably 12, 10 to 12 years ago um, we have an amazing database of every single, every, pretty much every single uh, email communication on every single project we've done um, that we can pull up at any time, and and it, and it helps us when we have you know, whether changeover of personnel um, or an old project come up. We said what happened here, um, you know. So that that sort of thing has really helped us. Uh, How did you do that twenty years ago? <clears throat> oh, that was about ten years ago. That mm. yeah. Um, but before you had, because now you've got like, product numbers and you capture the emails and stuff, mm. how was that done 15 years ago? Uh, yeah, how do we do it beforehand? Um, I don't think it was done much at all. Yeah, and that, right. that's, that's the difference. I, yeah, you, you'd, I suppose the emails, we'd, you'd sort of save this, the important ones manually. You know, yeah. we'd drag print it over out. into a folder yeah. or print them out or, yeah, yeah we'd, we would, we'd still have manila folders for every single project where you, you printed all the important things out and it's obviously a little bit down to um, trusting humans to print the right ones out um, and and uh, and record all the information required. So, mm. yeah, the, the communicate and obviously as we all know, the communication side of things has changed a lot in the last few years with the advent of COVID and, and, and driving um, things like Teams and Slack and all that sort of stuff. So we, we, we were using Slack and, and whatnot before that. But um, I do sometimes think there's too much. Um, mm. There can be too much yeah. of it. But yeah. And leading ahead, Scott, like if you the challenges you as a business owner face and with technology and you know, where we're going, can you share mm. what mm. what those are? What you see? Yeah. Well, there's obviously challenges and opportunities. I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity um, in. For, for me, what what I there's a couple of things we'd like to focus on, and, and personally, one as a business owner is to really understand um, in depth how the business runs up to date, day to day. You know, that's that's sort of my dream to say well, all the metrics, the key metrics of the business and our and our key clients are at hand at all times. Now, we're not far away from that. But we're a long way from that in, in, in a lot of ways, um, and that's probably more more humans in the way of, of technology or, or being able to pull all the different parts of technology together. Um, I think that's a great opportunity for for anyone that wants it to run a really smooth. We know that businesses aren't always smooth, but as smooth as possible business with the up to date information that we can get um, to make decisions, critical decisions all the time, and and to make sure you're also servicing your clients, which is really mm-hmm. what the business's purpose is, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been amazed with the change in in advent of AI, um, not necessarily yet in our industry affecting that, but um, the uptake from we wouldn't even have this conversation two years ago about AI, and now everyone's talking about it. 
someone, some people, as we've talked about, are calling things AI that aren't AI. That's but, right. Um, yeah, it's a buzzword. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Any software these days that comes out in this news, AI. Yeah. Well, this, this podcast yeah. is all done by AI. That's We're right. not really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I, I truly believe that it, it will hugely impact what, what we do, not just AI, but, you know, just different ways of programming things. Um, there's a lot of what engineers do that can be done by a computer um, almost without input or, or very little input. Um, and I, I would see that – I'm just throwing numbers out here, but I'm, I would see that possibly 50% of what we're doing now – Will, will change and not be done by a, yeah. a person. Well, really? Personal, yeah, yeah potentially. Wow. Yeah. Um, so so being maybe not the first but certainly not the last in that, that side of things is important to us yep. uh, to make sure that um, we're not left behind, whether that's left behind because some someone else, a competitor does it, uh, uses technology to do it better or uses technology to do it cheaper. Um, which is probably more where our industry goes, normally yeah. cheaper rather than yeah. better, but yeah. And are clients demanding any particular technologies or new ways? Like you mentioned earlier that, you know, we are behind the Germans and the Europeans. Like is, is that translating into ma- demands that customers put on you as an engineering firm to, to embrace newer technology platforms or systems or anything like that? Uh, not not really as, as yet in the straight engineering design and consultancy space. I, I think that in reality, only our really sophisticated clients, our, our best clients really understand what we do in a lot of ways anyway. Uh, there's, there's a lot that um, – and certainly the general public, when you say you're an engineer, half of them still think you're driving a train, you know. So uh, um, there's a lot that don't fully understand how we get to a point. And that's back to what I was probably talking a little bit about marketing before is that engineers don't explain it well enough either. Um, so it's, it's probably on us more than anyone else. Um, so they're not. We're not really outside of the the, the, the drawing and digital side and the three D modelling side. Um, that's a that's a must. Um, it's our opportunity to show what can be done differently. I think there's there's a, which is a really good opportunity because once you know, as you know, when you put something out and and show the benefit of something in that technology early, um, and then that that. That's sort of automatically associated with you and your service. Um, so yeah, not not so much yet. Uh, I, I can see more broadly the construction industry changing um, in the next. Well, I probably would have said this ten years ago, but maybe in the next ten years, um, we don't do a hell of a lot of modular construction or prefabricated construction. We tend to just throw people into something on a site, um, uh, but with the pressures that we're currently having, that's that's coming out again. So that changes the way we design things too because you then – what modular and precast tends to do in a, in a project is it means you've got to design really, really accurately and a lot earlier in the process. You yeah. can't wait till it's being built to resolve your design. You have to have it fully resolved, um, fully coordinated with the other specialists and then they build it and, you know, off-site and – throw it up on site so yeah. mm, that's exciting i mean 50% of job being automated with ai that's a crazy opportunity for whoever masters that and gets there first it has been interesting i think like the amount engineering firms rely on technology over the years you just got more and more and more and more right it's going to be much bigger you know tech tech spend less humans um, probably in 10 years which would be pretty exciting um, more broadly speaking 
you mentioned before we jumped on the show, uh, you're really passionate and excited about Brisbane and the opportunity we've got here. Do you want to speak a bit, little bit about, about that? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Brisbane boy and I, and I do think we're in one of the most livable cities in the world. And I'd probably extend that, I would extend that to southeast Queensland in general. So when I say Brisbane, I, I'm really talking about southeast Queensland, but ultimately I'm from Brisbane, so I, I use that term more than anything. Um, as we know, we, we, we have a, a major, the world's biggest event coming um, to, the, to the smallest place it's ever come to. You know, that, that's the cool thing about um, Brisbane winning the Olympics is that uh, we've got a real opportunity. We will be uh, on the world stage as a relatively small city, really. And with that drives all sorts of um, desire to to build and and to live here and for opportunities for people to come and see and go oh look 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 what they've got there um i do i do fear that we might not fully utilize or leverage the opportunity we've got um i have no doubt we'll put on a great olympics what do you mean by that what why i i think that the the opportunity of the olympics is not just to put on a great olympics the opportunity is to create a legacy for a whole region or a whole city for 50 years, you know. So there's there's once there's once in our lifetime chance, probably once in two lifetimes chance that, that Brisbane's going to have an opportunity that people can throw all sorts of money at the city, the infrastructure of the city, um, not just sporting infrastructure but, but transport infrastructure in particular um, uh, and, and development in general. You know, it's almost an unlimited it will be almost an unlimited pot. But so how can we plan around using that to the best advantage for future people in yep. southeast Queensland in you know, so that we're we're not in twenty fifty talking about traffic problems or transport problems or mm. all sorts of all sorts of things like that. There is a lot of people saying that now that, you know, obviously there's a bit of a housing crisis going on already. Uh, traffic's getting only worse at the moment. Um, people, are, Some people are actually negative about the uh, Olympics coming in because of those kind of concerns, uh, which is going to be interesting. What are some of the ways you think that they can plan for the uh, Olympics 2032 um, without causing all those problems and, and planning so it is a legacy? What are some of your ideas? We should be voting Scott in as a politician, right? You know, <laughs> we, we, we need good leadership. So. <laughs> um, I Look, transport. It's everything to me uh, lines up with transport first. We've we've had an announcement about two weeks ago uh, about the development of of Hamilton North Shore. Um, I, I think the number is something like you know twelve thousand new new apartments in that area over the next ten years or so. Oh. You know, it's it's mm. the biggest growth area in Brisbane. It doesn't have a train station. Mm. Um, right. we, we've got an opportunity to put a train station there, and I'm no doubt that there's conversations about it. But I don't understand why that's not that should be the first bit, you know. Um, the housing yeah. bit comes after it. So we've got a funny city where where we've got some really great places that should be developed that aren't being developed, and some places that probably shouldn't be developed. That you know, we generally do follow public transport, but then some of it and, and train lines in particular in our in our high density areas. But then we've had over a 20, 30-year period, a real push for development around large shopping centres. Um, so that might be the Frank Lowry rule, I'm not sure, but, you know, we've got a huge density at Chermside with limited transport um, out there outside of buses. 
uh, Malkabat's the same thing. Mm. Um, you know, wh- why did we choose those hubs? Well, we know why we chose those hubs because there's big shopping centres there. Um, but why aren't we choosing hubs that are that are perfectly capable of of transporting mass transporting a lot more people? Um, also, please don't choose places in the flood zone like Milton, um, yeah. or, or make sure you. You know, sort of mitigate against those issues. You know. yeah. Shopping centres and schools uh, that seem to be the areas everyone just flocks around there and then wants to go in those areas because of that, which is understandable yeah. because yeah. you need to get close to those things. You need, if you're young family, for example, you've got to look for good school areas and that kind of thing. It uh, makes, makes a lot of sense. What do you think some of the challenges apart from transport uh, we're going to see? I think the biggest one that everyone's talking about in the industry at the moment is just cost of construction. Mm. So uh the the government spend that's happening on on health right now um and health in the next few years will then will actually will overlap with the spend on sports infrastructure uh so we've got an unprecedented spend uh on from government on construction activities now the issue with that is we've got a limited supply of people limited supply of construction supplies um, but particularly people. Um, so th- those two government spends can't not happen, you know, particularly mm. the Olympics one. But the health one's already there and it's already happening. So what it's doing is it's driving up construction pricing throughout the whole industry. Um, we have um, particularly at that high end of government spend, they'll all be um, unionised labour forces uh, with high pay rates and, and they're starting to suck up uh, other other sort of not normally government trades going into that space, um, which I don't blame them. They're looking for the best return and the best pay and all that sort of thing. But it's pulling them out of private, uh, the private development space. And the private development space is the space that provides all their houses. Yeah, um, which is super important because, <clears throat> like I said before, it's already in a housing crisis. There's all this, like, you know, health and Olympics kind of construction going to happen and people need to – you know, people need to be in construction and building um, those kind of things. The construction industry has had a pretty terrible time over the past few years, right, with collapsing and, like you said, shortage on people and, and um, increasing costs, going crazy. And it's a risky business. I think everyone, even five years ago, looked at construction as potentially the risky kind of industry, but I think now even like more so than ever. What are some creative ways that that industry can um, like fix those challenges? Well, it's it's interesting. It is. I think it's starting to be fixed a little bit already. Okay. Um, the 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 real issue with with builders, and, and I'm not an ex- expert necessarily on 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 how they contract and um, and the solutions there, but uh, the real issue is that they they lock in pricing um, on a particular day, and two years later they're still building it, um, and. What happens is that their their input costs um, in in their model of 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 the price change, but their end price doesn't. So um, I've said that I'm going to build this for a hundred dollars. Uh, I know my costs are eighty dollars at that point in time. Two years later, my costs are now one hundred ten dollars, and mm-hmm. that's that's what's happening. And it's and it's a particular contract system that does that. There, there are other models out there that are starting to be used a lot more um, frequently now. Like because cost plus kind of models? Cost, yeah, cost plus, um, uh, managing contractors, a number of different ways of doing it where builders have just got to the point where they don't have to accept the other way. 
probably their own, we're all our own worst enemy in in construction and, and and engineers are no different, but builders are the same. Once it gets quieter, they'll start going back to that and accepting it again. Yeah, uh, it's a hard challenge, right? Because even for the person who's signed the contract, and wants to get a thing built, it's pretty hard to budget for cost plus or you know uh, how, how do you because you got to probably fi- get finance for this stuff and it's a huge kind of design process to go through and if you don't know what it's going to cost at the end that's that's why they obviously fix yeah. price right yeah fi- finance is the biggest issue yeah you know, how, how can I lend you money to do this if I don't know how much it's actually going to cost yeah um, or if it works in the end so and the banks aren't going to loan you between you know six and eight mil somewhere mm. uh, <laughs> it's, yeah it gets, gets a little bit tricky uh, but you know, I think that a, a friend of mine always says the the solution for high prices is high prices. You know, so it you know the market does sort itself out at some point, but we yeah. probably just have to learn from these these big swings. You know, Brisbane hasn't had a big swing in market forces in construction for a long time, and that's been a great place to work because we we can know what's happening. But um, what what we aren't very good at is when there's a big change up or a big change down. Mm. And that's, that's the problem. Without getting political here, um, what's your thoughts on the housing, like the residential housing shortage and what do you think can be done? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex problem. I think that um, there's a number of things and I, and I do think that the, the, the federal and state governments uh, are doing the right things as far as funding for social and affordable housing. Um, that, that is a, uh, it's probably a little bit of a band-aid. Uh, I, I think throwing throwing some money at something very quickly to go, well, this is this now needs to be social or now it needs to be affordable. Um, the longer term fixes are probably a, cu- a couple of things and a, and a couple of things I've seen done in other places pretty well. One is just reducing the 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 costs and the red tape around construction is is a huge thing so around the approvals around the approvals uh is particularly you know like six six months or 12 months extra can can add so much cost to the to the project um allow people to do small infill projects more often brisbane's not great for that in fact uh, since i think 2014 have almost been anti putting little infill projects um everyone likes to protect their leafy suburbs and houses so (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and that, that's what we vote for, to be honest. It's our, that's our fault as as residents to say, I don't, not in my backyard type of thing. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the most affordable type of what, um, infill you can do, whether it's granny flats or a couple of townhouses or, or whatnot. That's the stuff that actually people can still purchase or or rent for a reasonable price. Uh, and I, I guess the other thing I've seen done overseas, and, and I'm just thinking post more likely the UK, is that they they – when they have a larger project, and it's starting to be done a little bit more now, is that they actually mandate that a certain percentage of that project's affordable. So they have to be delivered um, so it can be rented or purchased at a lower price point. Um, and, and they get they get plenty of concessions or, or whatnot around that. And it's starting to be done here mm-hmm. now. Um, but, but more of that, to me, is a, a longer-term solution um, around it, to, you know, a bit of give and take. Uh, yeah. It is an interesting challenge because you're right, they're that not in my backyard thing, right? Because people have their house and they want, you know, normal, anyone in Australia blocking their view, people go get upset. Mm-hmm. I cut down a tree at my place and my neighbour said, <clears throat> I've been watching that tree go for 20 years. I was like, okay, all right. He was, he was dropping stuff on the roof so we had to get it cut down. And he's like, but oh, I've been watching that. I was like, yeah. So I can imagine at a wider lens, 
there'd be so many other problems from people in like the you know um, family kind of suburbs building like a you know four story thing with, with much more affordable housing. Yeah, uh, a lot of other people get uh, might be about it. I'm seeing, and the, the issue normally happens is that it takes a lot of pressure to shift people's perceptions. Mm. Um, and once you start this, ha- and this has, I, I asked this question of a, a leading Yimby, yes, in my backyard advocate, um, <laughs> not not long ago. And she said, I said, do, do you see this? Do you see actually Yimby's winning in other parts of the world? And she said, yes, there's parts of the, the States, for instance. And, it, and it, it's just come up around because of the, the simple pressure of, you know, having, uh, for instance, homeless people on the street um, or having, you know, like things that aren't working well in a community um, and, and then going, all right, I can actually understand how helping provide lower cost housing um, will help the whole community, not, you know, it might a little bit negatively impact me at the start but everyone gets used to it after a bit anyway and they've actually got a better, stronger community to, to live in. Um, it's just that we don't have, I don't think at any level of government, uh, anyone with the strength to stand up and explain that and and, and show it and lead it, um, but particularly at a local government level. It's, um, you know, we're very, this is probably a broad statement that I probably shouldn't say, but it's a broad <laughs> statement, but very uh, reactionary to the vocal minority. What are your thoughts on the build to rent that's going on? Do you think that's going to solve any challenges? Without a doubt, yeah. Um, we're scratching the surface of that only at the moment. But um, yeah, in in the US, it's it's huge. Like um, I don't know don't know the figures off the top of my head, but uh, I would you know from a percentage perspective, it's twenty or thirty times what what we've got here. Uh, build to rent housing in in that's planned in Australia. Um, planned or in development is still less than 1% of housing supply. Even though most of these built to rent are 200 plus units and, and some of them are uh, 600 to 1,000, uh, the stuff that's coming up, it's still a very, very, very small part of of what we can do. And I think that there's real opportunity to, you know, like when you get those, the, the big ones, they create communities by themselves as well. Um, the, the the reason seems to be, and again, not an expert on the financing for build to rent, but the reason seems to be that um, the the funding model is very different. Um, so it's not necessarily just about the initial return on on selling something. It's a it's a longer term, more patient capital, you know, superannuation um, investment that that side of things, so that uh, they can accept a slightly higher construction cost than than build to sell. Right? And the the premise around that is that it's also like serviced kind of uh, living as well, right? Um, so for the um, people that can get into cheaper housing, doing like a build to rent kind of thing, and lower cost of living, also get better service and a bit of a community. Look at like Gasworks, for example. It's pretty cool over Gasworks actually. Mm. Um, there's some good apartments up there, for example, with downstairs. There's heaps of culture you can go down to, and shopping centres right there, and it's good location close to the city. So I mean. If I think of Viltrant, like that kind of concept makes a bit of sense, to be honest, for Brisbane. Oh, look, if if I was uh, mid-20s and wanting to somewhere to live, I'd, I'd be definitely looking at that as an option, you know. Yeah. And, uh, great, great services. They're not necessarily more affordable, necessarily cheaper from a rental perspective because you've got to pay for all those services. Um, but for what you get for lifestyle, um, you know, it's, it is 
more affordable than buying something. So yeah. yeah. All right. I think that's all the questions I had. No, is there anything else you wanted to add before probably, we close out? Yeah, the only question I've really got as a business owner leading, you know, inertia into to be one of the best in southeast Queensland and passionate about Brisbane, Scott, like what are the challenges you face on a day-to-day basis? Like give us three things that, you know, you see that, you know, is common as a business owner that you, you would face with on a, on a weekly basis. Good question, Nigel. Uh, the Look, the, the one that's obvious at the moment is lack of resources yep. um, and that, that is discussed almost on a day-to-day basis at our at our business. Uh, uh, it, it's probably a little bit what we talked about with res- regards to the construction industry and, and builders not not having enough people to do the work that that is coming. Um, but then we've got not enough places to for them to live when they do come. So it's yeah. a, uh, an, a, another um, associate of mine said. Um, um, they've got to come and build it. Look, that that's probably the, 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 the biggest without a doubt right right yep. now. Um, I, I would say that the pressures of the industry in construction prices are also making it difficult to efficiently manage our operations. So not just through lack of resources but because what, what happens often with the project work is that it gets – it gets so far um, and then it gets repriced and then we have to look at is it is the pricing an issue? Will it go ahead or not? Um, we, do we have to change it? Do we have to stop? So this year in particular has been characterised by projects starting and stopping, starting and stopping, starting and stopping. So, right. so we're already low on resources yep. but then we've got to manage a constant change in our forward workflow uh, around it. So. Uh, and as you know, doing that, it's not efficient at yep. all. So then we're adding more cost potentially, either, either more cost just to us and absorbing it or more cost to the actual project because of the change and all yep. that. Um, so it's ironic that <laughs> higher costs are causing higher costs again. Yep. Yeah. It's like you to build in more risk in a time where people can't take more risk to be built in. So it's, yeah. it's a weird one. That's right. Yeah, I think I've only got two major ones. Okay. There's probably lots yeah. of no, little fairly, things. But. Fairly common, I guess. We, I said to a lot of business owners we deal with, and even us, you know, resource and human resources and there's a massive challenge that, you know, I think it, it comes with it opportunity, but at the same time, you know, like what you said before, South East Queensland, you know, passionate and we're in reds, you know, want to be the best we can be in South East Queensland. Like I think we've got a, an amazing, you know, decade ahead of us. But, yeah, to your point, can we capitalise on that opportunity is mm. the biggest challenge. Yeah, I could think of nothing better to to look back in, you know, say let's say four or five years after the Olympics and say, oh, that, that was an amazing legacy that, you know, that we've benefited uh, a whole region or a whole state potentially yeah. for, for a long period of time. Absolutely. If anyone wants to find out more about Inertia or yourself, Scott, how can they reach you? Well, there's the website www.inertiaeng.com.au um, or look me up look me up through that yeah. awesome Scott thanks for coming in thank you thanks, thanks Scott me. cheers